Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local Development Institute, supported by the Swedish Research Council. The podcast guest of the month is the GLD associate, Dr. Adam Harris. Adam is an associate professor in development politics at the Department of Political Science, University College London. He is also an associated researcher at the Center for Social Change at the University of Johannesburg. Adam's research focuses on development, ethnic and African politics, and his work has been published in several political science journals. In this episode, Ellen and Adam will be talking about his book Everyday Identity and Electoral Politics, Race, Ethnicity and the Block Vote in South Africa and Beyond, from Oxford University Press, 2022. In this book, he seeks to understand why some voters do not vote along ethnic lines. First, we'll get an insight into the different groups within South Africa and how they came to be, to understand voting and ethnic voting. Second, we'll discuss those who don't identify with the ethnic group they quote-unquote belong to. What can be said about individuals who don't vote in the mass of a group? Adam suggests that we must take identity constructions seriously and look closer at attributes that in-group members assign a person while also looking at what the person identifies with in relation to that group. Finally, we'll discuss what role identity plays as democratic contexts become weaker. And in doing so, we'll move beyond the global south. As usual, the show is hosted by Professor Ellen Lust. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our channel. We hope you liked the episode. Adam, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you today about your book and also congratulations on it. It's great to see everyday identity and electoral politics now between hard covers and it, and it looks really, really good. So I just wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write the book to begin with. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and always happy to talk about uh, this project. My The idea for the project it's actually a long time in the making. I was, the, most of the book focuses on South Africa. And my first time in South Africa was as a volunteer. I took a break in undergrad from 2004, 2006, and I was doing some work there. It was actually my first time out of the country, um, out of the United States. And I was just immediately struck by how, I guess, just completely different from my hometown in Idaho, um, my environment was. I was also struck by how present politics felt in everyday life there in a way that I hadn't experienced myself, um, as well as the great kind of ethnic, racial, linguistic diversity that was present and the richness that came to that and came with that, as well as the intersection of the two, right? And the, the, the way that identity entered politics also was something that growing up in a very homogenous white neighborhood in the United in kind of rural America was not something that I had been exposed to previously. Of course, identity politics enters American politics in a very real way and in a lot of similar ways to, to South Africa, but that was the first time that I had been exposed to it. And so I, it immediately struck my interest and it was immediately something that I was interested in talking about. And then fast forward, I guess, nearly two decades. Um, and here we are with this book. 
<laughs> that was a pretty fast forward. It's, <laughs> but but very useful, and it's actually it is interesting when you when you have those experiences where suddenly you've seen something that that you don't think you've seen before, right? You know, you're right that race and identity enters U.S. politics very very clearly. And at the same time, it's not necessarily something I grew up in rural Michigan. It's also not something that you really saw there. Um, in hindsight, I see it. In hindsight, yeah, it's very yeah. clear. No, right? But at the time, you know, yeah. it's, it's, quite, it's quite missing. And the thing about you know, South Africa and that you talk about in the book, I mean, you focus on what you call the colored population or what is called the colored population. And I think it's useful before we get kind of too much into the weeds about how, how we understand voting and how we understand ethnic voting to really think about, help people understand the, the different groups within South Africa and how they came to be. Yeah, so South Africa's demographics are largely, the terms they use in South Africa is Black African, which makes up 75 and 80% of the population. And the rest is divided among whites who can hail their origins from Europe, mostly Dutch and British. And then a large, South Asian population, which is referred to as Indians, even if one's ancestry is from India or Pakistan, et cetera. And then colored, as you mentioned. Coloreds are traditionally understood as a mixed race group, primarily of you know, white colonial interminglings with the local population when as colonization began. But actually in a lot of ways, it's an amalgamation of groups, especially through apartheid, that emerged as a result of anyone that didn't fit clearly into the other three groups was kind of grouped into this colored community. And so it is in a lot of ways similar to kind of, if you think about the Latinx com uh, community in the United States where Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, et cetera, uh, are all kind of lumped into this larger umbrella category. We can think of it in that way, although the kind of subgroup divisions are less clear and the colored community is more kind of, in a way, reappropriated this negative identity that came out of apartheid and uh, gave, given it their own kind of positive meaning. And it does constitute quite a cohesive social and political group, maybe even to more of a degree than uh, the, Latin, the Latin American community. And when we say that it constitutes a political group, can you give us just a sense of how Black Africans, whites, and coloreds map onto the political parties and the political scene in South Africa? Yeah, so the, the Black population tends to support the ANC, which is the party of Nelson Mandela that liberated the country from apartheid. There are a number of other, quote unquote, Black parties that also represent the interests of the majority of Black population. The EFF is one. The Economic Freedom Fighters, which has kind of come to prominence in the last 10 years or so. And then there's the Democratic Alliance, which is the main opposition party, which traditionally it, it grew out of a opposition party under apartheid. And it is generally seen as a, a white party, but has, well, up until very recently successfully diversified itself and probably even today still does claim the most diverse support base, although its support base is disproportionately white, even though the white population makes up 8% of the population, 8-9%, it constitutes a majority of the DA's pop, uh, support. And then you have the colored population. So I did say they are a clear kind of cohesive 
political group, less so than the other two, whereas it depends across time in the elections, but the DA, or sorry, the color population tends to support the Democratic Alliance, which is again, the traditional white party, but a sizable proportion, you know, 30-ish percent will go for the ANC. The, yeah, the economic freedom fighters are also gaining support recently um, across the most recent elections. There's a slight uptick among the color population. So it is a bit dispersed, but the color population has tended to ally itself with the white democratic alliance, which is interesting because historically the colored population has been pushed and pulled in other dire- in various directions, especially during apartheid. There was the question of, do we take some of the concessions that the, uh, the white minority rule has given us and ally ourselves with the white population, which was the purpose behind these kind of olive branches? Or do we resist from outside and align ourselves with the ANC and other uh, resistance movements? And so it does have this tradition of where do we belong um, and who do we align with? And currently they tend to align with the Democratic Alliance. And so you're talking about this in the sense of the group, right, aligning with different parties. And and I think what you're trying to turn our attention to in the book is the fact that while the group may align itself with a certain party, that we still nevertheless will get individuals who may be voting for someone other than what the group is aligning with, right? So they may align with the DA, but but you can get some individuals who will not necessarily vote with the rest of the with the rest of the group. And that, in a sense, is what I think is one of the big contributions of your book is to say, first of all, people don't always sort of vote in mass as a group, but also then to answer the question of can we say something about those people who will choose not to align with the rest of the group and why they might do so? I think it's a great argument. I'm going to let you put it forth, but can you explain to us how do we understand why when we have coloreds, for instance, we get some people who are going to vote differently than the rest of the group? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. That was a fantastic summary. And yes, that's exactly what I was in, what I was and continue to be interested in is, I mean, there's lots of kind of popular understandings of South Africa and many scholars have said that if any country was an ethnic census or an election in which you can read political preferences off someone's ethnic or racial identity, it's South Africa, because there is such a tight correlation between race and vote choice. But there is variation, an important variation, where you know not all Black voters support the ANC or even traditionally, quote unquote, Black parties. And uh, and even and especially the colored population, as I mentioned, they're a little bit more diverse in their preferences to begin with. So they offered a good spot to kind of look in and see what drives this variation. And so what I tried to think about is oftentimes we as political scientists, we say identities are constructed and oftentimes we'll pay lip service to that to varying degrees. But we often say that and then move on and treat identities as if they are uh, static or at least um, consistent within a group that I can just, you know, understand that you're from this group and then I can infer what your identity is doing to your politics, to your vote choice, etc. But I wanted to actually take seriously the idea that identities are constructed and try and see if I construct a different identity relative to others in my group, does this then create a different relationship that I have with the group? and then have an impact on my vote choice. To actually link and take, again, take seriously this idea that identities are constructed and have a direct impact on the salience that my identity plays when I'm in the ballot box, when I'm in the voting booth. 
in some ways, you're not only saying that, okay, we can take this very seriously. You're suggesting, I, I, as I read it, the ways in which individuals within a group interact also helps to construct this, right? That it's not just about, you know, am I different or how have I thought about this, but that there's ways in which we can say, okay, um, you know, not everybody treats each other equally, right? And we know this in terms of people can talk about it with regards to a lot of different ways, right? I mean, there's this whole question about how weight makes people treat each other differently or lots of, of other sets of things that we might think of as either advantages or disadvantages from what the population sees as, as kind of appropriate. You're suggesting that it's those dynamics, at least as, again, as my reading of this, it's those dynamics that matter as much as my just sort of individual assessment of what is my identity, that we really need to think of this as an interactive process. And in some ways, you're taking skin tone as a way of thinking about what is it that signals to other people how, how much I belong or how much I don't belong. It's a bit of a controversial way to sort of think about, about identity and about markers, right? So I'd like to hear your, how you decided to, to use that as a marker, but also what have you learned about it in the process of your work? Maybe I can just step back and explain the, the process, because what you're talking about is exactly this, where the, why the term everyday kind of shows up in the title, is that it is our daily interactions with others that shape the way that we see ourselves. Because I might feel very strongly that I'm a member of a certain group, but in my daily interactions, I'm not treated as such. And so let me give you two examples from, from my field work where me and my research team did some interviews with members of the colored population. And we tried to get a sense of, you know, how do you see yourself? How do you relate to your group? What are the experiences you have that shape your sense of self? I mean, we ask these in different ways than, these, than that, but um, just to try and get people to talk about how they see themselves and experience their lives as a colored individual in South Africa. And one woman told us that when she'd go to work in the morning and she'd kind of pass, you know, this group of guys that was always on the street corner or whatever, they would always yell, there goes that white lady and she's too white to associate with us. But she was colored and identified herself as such. And for members of her own group to see her skin tone in this way and draw this line between them and her caused an unease for her. And she was like, well, I'm, I'm colored, of course, but she was very uncomfortable with kind of her place in the group and felt this kind of distance between her and the rest of the group. On the flip side, another um, interviewee, she discussed how when she was living, uh, at one point in time, she was living in kind of the granny flat, which is like the, the flat behind the apartment that was behind her sister-in-law's house. She and her sister-in-law are both uh, colored women. But Sharon, my respondent, and it's an anonymized name, um, <laughs> she, she, she's relatively dark in complexion and her sister-in-law would not allow Sharon's children to play with her children, their cousins, outside the house or even at school acknowledge that they were cousins because they were quote unquote too dark. So again, this line is drawn as a result of this ill treatment. And that was just one of many examples and kind of quite horrific that it was family within, within the family, she actually completely rejected the idea of being colored and identified herself as black. And so there's lots of different reactions we can have to this, but the idea is if people don't immediately see me as a member of my group, they're gonna treat me differently. And therefore 
this then kind of creates this distance between myself and the rest of the crew. And as you mentioned, the reason why I focus in on, on skin tone, one, because some of, a lot of these respondents that we interviewed in our qualitative interviews highlighted this role. I mean, research, popular understandings also suggest that our skin tone is one of the first things that people see and notice and use to code us. Because whether we like it or not, we live in a world where we use the easy, most easily accessible information to make sense of a complex world. And part of that process is putting people into boxes. And if you don't fit into a box clearly, then I might not know how to interact with you. I might interact with you in the quote unquote wrong way by treating you as if you belong somewhere else. Again, quote unquote belong. And so even if I see myself in one way, others perceive me as another, this then interacts, as you said, to then create a very different identity than someone who in my example is seen as a colored treated as if they're a member of the colored community. And so in their daily life, someone who is more quote unquote prototypically colored or has the attributes that most people associate with that group won't question their identity. In fact, is reinforced on a daily basis in a very subconscious way that they're not even aware of. Whereas others in the group like Sharon and, and the first woman who I've given the name of Helen in, my, in the book, uh, mention they grapple with their identity on a daily basis and are constantly reconstructing it and have a more kind of turbulent relationship with their identity. And it's this Helen and Sharon who should be the ones that should be less likely to toe the group line. They won't see themselves as core members of the group. We'll see this division that has been placed between them and others and are likely to be more open to other considerations than just voting with the rest of the group, in this case, the Democratic Alliance. As you're talking about this, one of the things that's going through my mind is that, of course, I'm in Sweden, and we have people who look like traditional ethnic Swedes, right? Blonde hair, you know, fairly tall, blue eyes. You also get people who are Swedish, born in Sweden for all of their lives, speak Swedish fluently, et cetera, but have backgrounds that are not from the traditional ethnic Swedes and, and are often you're out with them. Of course, I don't speak Swedish worth anything will be with a friend who is Swedish, speaks Swedish fluently, people will assume I'm Swedish and, and that she's not. They're so not. it's very interesting, right? You're right that people will treat people differently depending on kind of the cues that they get when they first see people and you know, does it fit, seem to fit or not fit. What I like is the way to think about how that then affects how individuals act, right? Because a different way of thinking about it is there's, of course, the the sense of not belonging and in some ways, I mean, even some, a sense of rejection in the case of Sharon, right? But, but there's also freedom, right? So now I can choose to vote for whoever I want to vote for, right? Because it no longer matters that I'm fitting with a group that in some ways I feel to some extent has decided I didn't fit with them to begin with. It's a sad story in some ways, right? But it's also very interesting in terms of thinking about what that means for the extent to which basically social constraints and the kinds of, of kind of norms and obligations that come from belonging to a group mean and how those get a little bit weakened if everybody in the group doesn't think I necessarily belong to begin with. So, yeah. yeah. And, and what's really interesting is that I like this kind of, it kind of liberates you from the shackles of having to think and see things through this group lens, right? Which we could imagine, I mean, so the book tries to explain who doesn't vote with the group, 
but it stops short and doesn't have the data to explore how these people actually do vote in the end. I explore it a bit, but the preferences are so diverse that there's not a clear kind of, if they're not voting for the DA, they're going to the ANC, that's not the case. And, and, the, and I characterize these voters as swing voters, which are inherently difficult to kind of pin down as, hence they're swing voters. But the point is that, and I do find some evidence that these individuals are more open to consider other things in a way that isn't colored by identity politics. And in fact, kind of quote unquote, moving beyond identity politics, thinking about policy, thinking about corruption, thinking about what one wants to get out of government in, in a way that isn't, oh, but does this group care? Does this party care about my group? I'm not clearly in my group. So if they're looking out for that group, do I benefit either way? So let me just see who, you know, there's some evidence that they might be considering more quote unquote, healthy democratic uh, voting behavior in terms of thinking about policy and track records and things like that. That's interesting. And you talk about a, a little bit about other ways in which these same kinds of dynamics might take place, right? You talk about Uganda, you talk about the United States in terms of other cases where we see some of this, and a little bit about language, for example, as a sort of type of marker versus, you know, just kind of skin, skin color um, or skin tone. Can you say a little bit about what you think are the kind of the reaches and limits? In other words, right, because I can I can fit or not fit in a group for lots of different reasons. I mean, it might be the accent I have. It might be the, the even the word choices that I have, you know, different ways in which people can see you as belonging or not belonging. What's the range and, and yeah. why are some things privileged over the others? Yeah, I, I could talk for ages about this, but... <laughs> Um, the, 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 I guess the headline is what's really interesting is across the three cases, my, my theory of kind of the sociological construction of identity and its knock on uh, and its effects on voting behavior, it doesn't apply to every single group that I investigate in any of the countries, right? So what's interesting, I think, if we look at the South Africa and the U.S., as being very similar, race is the key dimension. We can measure skin tone in the same way and look at this systematically across groups. And I expand beyond the colored population to look at white and black populations in South Africa. And then in the US, I look at white, black, and Latino. And what I find is that it applies to the majority populations in both countries. So white in the US, black in South Africa, and then Latino and colored in South Africa. But the, the, the two other minority groups, white in South Africa, black in the US, it does not apply to. There seems to be kind of no relation. Even though, you know, there's a lot of research on colorism in the African-American community, and you think that this might play out. But what I speculate is that both these uh, groups in these two countries have a stronger sense of solidarity and need to work out for the group and use politics as a way to push forward the progress of the group. And so, in those instances, when you have a strong sense of solidarity, the daily treatment that you get might impact your identity, but it's not going to be such that it's going to undo the importance of the group being united politically. And so you don't want to be one that's defecting in that way. And that I, I feel like that jives with a lot of uh, the recent research in African-American politics that suggests you know, why there is such a cohesion in um, African-American voting population for the Democratic Party. Um, similarly, whites in South Africa, they don't, the DA is kind of their only legitimate voice in politics, and they are such a small group. They also suffer from kind of the stigma of being associated with apartheid, and 
um, the need to kind of make sure that the group's interests are at least represented to some degree is strong enough that maybe the way that I'm treated that separates me from the rest of the group is enough to motivate me. And then the dynamics in Uganda are interesting because what I do is I, again, this is my attempt to move beyond race and skin tone and think about variation in regional and linguistic identities. I won't bore you with the, the ways in which I conceptualize this, but saying that we can move and look at other ethnic identities and think about this in, in the, the degree to which I am typical of my group or not. And it does have some explanatory power and suggest that ethnolinguistic similarity between groups or the, the degree to which I'm typical of my ethno-regional group does put me solidly in line with that group's political party, suggesting that there's reason to believe that the theory could apply to your more typical um, African context where you have ethno-regional groups rather than racial groups as the key divide. Um, although, again, future research should continue to investigate this and see the degree to which it applies uh, beyond these cases. Going back to these cases where we have such strong sense of needing to remain cohesive, right? The kind of African-American community in the U.S. or black community in the U.S. and then the, the whites in South Africa. Do we have any evidence that people are essentially punished even more in those communities for defecting from the group? Because that's the way I guess I'm thinking about it is that we can think in terms of to what extent is it that even if I'm maybe not going to be punished, but even if the magnitude of that is so much greater, do we have a sense of the sanctioning that takes place? Ishmael White and Cheryl Laird have a fantastic book from 2020 um, called Steadfast Democrats that investigates exactly this, that like the punishment or sanctioning or the, the, the I'm forgetting what their words are, but it, there is this evidence in the African-American community of this sanctioning of this uh, kind of punishment for falling out of falling out of line, so to speak. So again, yeah, so that's why I said that I think it does drive in the white Labyrinth case less so and nothing comes immediately to mind. But again, I highly recommend that book for those interested in this. Uh, so it's sort of in-group policing is higher is their, is their argument. Interesting. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. I want to bring in another set of work that you've been doing, if, if you don't mind. And that is this work about thinking about mixed ethnic marriages, the, the mixed marriage work that you've been doing with other colleagues. And, and particularly, I think, looking at Malawi, but maybe not only Malawi. And so how does that fit into thinking about these questions about constraints and the choices that people make and the extent to which they stay in you know, kind of in line with ethnic or identity voting? Well, what Jeremy Horowitz and Boniface Jelani and I find is that first, that on average, about 20% uh, in, in the average African country, about 20% of the population will be of mixed ethnic heritage. And this proportion has been rising over the past you know, 30 or so years. And so the idea that our traditional understanding of ethnic politics in Africa suggests that, or is based on the idea of kind of singular identities. Again, we understand them to be constructed, but there's a non-negligible size of the population that doesn't clearly, you ask them what's your ethnic identity, well, it depends, right? And, I'm, and I have different camps, different groups I can align with. And what we find is that those who are mixed ethnic heritage are less likely to vote with their self-identified co-ethnics, right? So if you do ask them, which one do you identify most with? We compare 
someone of mixed ethnic characters to that group and find that they're less likely to vote in the way that the group tends to vote. And we have a, a bunch of different ways and we had to think about this, but there seems to be some support for a number of different mechanisms. But I really think, I mean, part of the story is that once again, I'm less beholden to a single group. I have more options. This can either be strategic, it can be expressive, where I'll, I'm going to align with whatever part of my identity is most likely to win the election or the one with which I identify most strongly. It once again, drives us to, to ask the questions of how do these people relate to their identity? Do they identify more with one or the other? Do they identify as mixed, which we're not finding much evidence for? Do they identify equally with both? Is it circumstantial? And if that's the case, what's the implication for politics? And it suggests that this is another avenue through which traditional ethnic voting is likely to be undermined, which we could think of as a good thing as people move beyond identity politics and think about the policies and performance of those in, those in office. It's also interesting, right? I mean, you know, not to become an old modernization theorist, but thinking about the ways in which people are more mobile. I mean, the other, another thing that struck me in, in our research on Malawi and with you is, you know, the extent to which we have this idea of even villages as being homogenous, right? This is a Chewa area, this is a Tabuka. But we actually see that they're very different, that there's quite a lot of heterogeneity, right? And as we see even more mobility in terms of just geographic mobility, then we should be expecting that we're going to get more of this. Like you said, it's mixed ethnic heritage sort of individuals, right? It's not even just about I've married somebody differently. This is a fact that, that in myself, I think of myself as being Chewa and Lomwe, for example, as a... As no, a, and I think that's, and I think that's, I, you hit the nail on the head, I think that's a key aspect of why things are changing, right? It is massive urbanization taking place, putting people into contact with groups that they weren't otherwise previously. And, and that's changed in the last, you know, 40 years. And, but we're still using our assumptions about what Africa looks like, what African countries look like from before this. And so I think we need to rethink this. And we are able to kind of disentangle the effects of urban versus uh, mixed heritage, even though they kind of tend to go together. But yeah, that's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's actually, I remember when you first told me it was around 20% and my jaw dropped, right? I mean, the fact that it was that that, that large of a number of of people, even though if I actually think about people I know in Kenya or Malawi and, and other places, it's not hard to come up with a list of people in your head who, who you know, are, are actually mixed ethnic heritage themselves, right? So it's, it's, yeah. that, it's that stereotype that we hold on to. And when we're making models, you know, and, and sort of thinking theoretically about what's taking place, that, that it almost sort of stops things in time. And then you have to say, wait a second, that might have been true 20 years ago and like, like 50 years ago. But is it true today? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the things that your book and, and your work really nicely highlights is, wait a second, let's think about people's real experiences and then how they really grapple with the, the kinds of stereotypes or shorthands that we've come to to attach to things like mm. identity politics. Um, and so I think it's a really, really great contribution in that sense. Give us a sense of, of what do you think are the next big questions or the next frontiers of asking about these sets of issues or others? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm one of many in the recent swing in the past, probably 10, 15 years of people taking this idea of ethnic voting and saying, okay, maybe we have this strong persistent correlation, but 
there's conditions under which it's more or less likely, right? And so I've just added another aspect of this. We've seen, again, in the last 10 years, a lot of this focuses on strategic voting and has kind of set aside the expressive or identity, the role of identity and how you feel towards your group uh, to the side. And so I've tried to bring that back in. I don't know if that's of interest uh, to others, but try and not go too far down one route where we kind of forget that there's other drivers and, the, and that even though identities can be used instrumentally and strategically, they still hold real value for people. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we need to understand that there's lots of different drivers, identities act in a lot of different ways. And I, I hope we can take a more holistic view of this. But I also think that there's a lot of different drivers, right? We've talked about, I've tried to talk about the identity construction process, and I hope that we continue to explore that because it's dynamic, it's changing. It's difficult to disentangle because it's endogenous to politics. The way I vote reinforces the way I think of myself, right? And so the identity construction pathways that we've gone through and then how that interacts with politics across our lifetime is fascinating. But then we've got demographic change that we've highlighted with urbanization and, and uh, inter-ethnic mixture and things like that. And then we also have <clears throat> where is democracy going, right? Um, as we see backsliding in many places or weakening or kind of failure of democracy to deliver what it's meant to deliver, what does this mean? As democratic contexts become weaker, what role does identity play? <clears throat> as democracy strengthens and as ethnicity and at least in my experience in South Africa and Malawi, it starts to kind of weaken, we should hopefully get to a better place where we have, quote unquote, more healthy politics. So I think exploring these various dynamics, both the movement of democracy and the movement of identity and how those intersect and interact is, is going to be really interesting for democratic accountability um, moving forward, which I think is at the heart of what I'm trying to understand is how can we, we care about how people vote because we care about what motivates them and how and to what degree they're able to hold their officials accountable. No, that's fantastic. And I totally agree. It's it's also interesting, I think, to think about the fact that that, that question extends far beyond Africa, right? So yeah. when we're thinking about it and even thinking about something like U.S. politics, since you and I are both American, the ways in which the backsliding or the, the fragility of democracy has also been attached to identity politics, yeah, right? Yeah. There and in Europe and elsewhere is really, really striking. So I think there's there's huge questions to be asked about identities and constructions and how people see themselves and how their groups are interacting on the one hand, regime types and democratization or democracy and backsliding and autocracy on another. And I think a third pillar of that then is also this question about economic welfare and development and that set of issues, right? Because I think that's also part of the of the puzzle and part of the sets of mm -hmm. issues. On the one hand, having people vote for better policies and care about the whole and all of these things that can actually be in a sense kind of good and moving beyond identity politics is is great and on the other hand it also might be that the failure to achieve that then feeds back into promoting identity politics mm. um, so yeah, i think yeah. yeah super interesting and that sorry that just also made me think of being here in the UK and thinking about the role of immigration and how that's bringing identity politics into Europe in a, in a new way. I mean, this has been over the past, you know, 10 plus years, but 
one of the key drivers be behind Brexit is this idea of immigration and not necessarily from the economic perspective, but from this, what is our identity? Who are we as, as, as the British, right? And so, yeah, these things have real implications for, you know, the survival of the European Union, for example, and, and things like this. So. Yeah. Things that, things that go far beyond, I guess, far beyond the global South, right? Because I yeah. think we, we tend to have this divide of things that are African and do they have anything to say for Europeans or for states or Canada, et cetera? And I think the answer that we can, we can come to is definitely yes. Yeah. Thank you. Is there any last words or anything that you wanted to make sure that we we know and and we didn't touch on? Um, no, just thank you so much for, for having me. And um, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. Please like and share the episode if you enjoyed it. And feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials on what you would like to hear more about in our upcoming episodes. We love to hear from you.